Hey everybody, Clint Fosley here and welcome back to the 35th edition of the Clint Fosley podcast series. And today's episode is entitled, Let's Talk About Sugar with Mike Collins from sugaraddiction.com. An absolutely fascinating conversation with Mike who has a background in addiction, addiction behavior and recovery and we discuss all the good and bad things about sugar. Um, I guess you will or won't be surprised that there are not many good things about sugar or well, they the white, the white sort of refined sugar that's pretty much in every single thing in our diet today. Now, you know, in terms of, as always on the podcast, we talk about Mike's sort of journey and his story and how he ended up as the, you know, the sugar addiction guy. Um, also just talk about, you know, all the sort of scientific facts about the, the negative effects of sugar. And then also talk about Mike's, um, you know, his programs to help you beat your sugar addiction, the 30 day program and how that all works. If you are struggling with a sugar addiction, we are do cover that in the Wildfoot program. So clintforcity.com forward slash Wildfoot is where you can find some more information for the next group session that's coming up. I just want to thank Mike so much for sharing so generously with his time. It was a super informative uh, podcast with lots and lots of information. Be sure to check out his website, sugaraddiction.com, and we'll put all the links up in the show note as, as always. So strap in, enjoy, and we'll see you on the other side. Clint Fosley here and welcome to the 35th edition of the Clint Fosley podcast series and today we are joined all the way from sunny LA by Mike Collins. Mike welcome to the podcast. Basically thanks for having me man I really appreciate it. it's an honor. So today's topic is let's talk about sugar and Mike runs a website and has a book on sugaraddiction.com and we are going to talk about um, all the good and bad things well the bad and bad things about sugar and the white poison as I refer to it as. Um, but Mike, let's, let's, before we get into that, firstly, how's your day been on that side of the world? It's a beautiful day here. Uh, you know, it's uh, sometimes a little chillier than people think in Southern California, but it's relative. Chile's, you know, 65 degrees <laughs> in the 50s at night. But <laughs> that's pretty that's nice. That's good, man. That's good. And what, what time is it there now? It is three o'clock in the afternoon. Okay. So all good. All good. I've just, uh, 9 a.m. for me on, I'm, I'm in the time capsule on Friday. Friday's looking good. Uh, took the dog for a walk down to the beach. That's been a good, a good start to the day. There you go. Awesome. So Mike, as we always like to do in the podcast, it's just kind of backstory where you grew up, what you like as a kid, where your interests were. And then we can obviously, you know, weave into, into your discovery around sugar and how that happened. I mean, I think for all of us, there's been personal health issues that have kind of led us on a path or personal, personal stories. So just want to start off like where you grew up, what we like as a kid uh, and, and, and what sort of life looked like in the early days. Yeah, no, I, uh, it's, I think I grew up as a regular kid. Um, uh, you know, I think everyone of that era was sugar soaked. My mom was a sugar junkie, mm. uh, loved her sugar. It's kind of a sad story at the beginning. My grandmother, uh, died when my mom was just eight years old and they lived, uh, they moved in with my, uh, great aunt, her aunt. And, uh, Basically, they owned the country store across the way. And anytime my mom went into that store, she could get candy for free because my grandfather had made an arrangement with the, uh, you know, his cousin over there across the way to, uh, to make sure that my mom was taken care of. Well, that was wonderful, a nice thing to do for a young child who'd lost her mom. But, and no one knew, the science wasn't there then. And uh, basically, she learned that sugar was love. And that was kind of a, 
a lesson that I adopted over my lifetime when we were just soaked in sugar. I mean, literally, we had unfettered access to the sugar bowl. We could have as much sugar on our cereal as we wanted. She didn't yeah. say don't need it or had don't take less or whatever. She just didn't even matter. And uh, we would literally scrape a half an inch off the with the milk at the end of the bowl, you know, I mean, we were just scraping sugar and eating it right out of the thing, like a, a sugar and milk mixture after the cereal was done. I remember drinking it out of the bowl as a kid as well, yeah. put your spoon and then you kind of drank the last bit of milk with the sugar. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so you understand you've been there. And, and I think a lot of folks have done that exact same thing. And uh, so you know, I, I, she always had a little stash. I always knew where it was. And the entire childhood was like that. You know, I mean, she, we made cookies on Saturday afternoons. It was like a ritual, like a, not a little bowl. I mean, a bowl, a bot, giant bowl, you know? And uh, there's a cool video on YouTube. Uh, Eric Clapton is talking about, uh, uh, he's talking to 60 Minutes, uh, the hmm. television news magazine. He says, you know, so 60 Minutes asks him, hey, this Eric, this addiction thing, it started with heroin, right? And they're sitting in his $7 million antique with treatment center he built for other people. And Eric says, no, Ed, it started with sugar. Wow. And it's like, I was eating bread and butter and sugar sandwiches at five and six years old to change my state. Now, remember that change my state thing, because that's going to be important. And we used to do that. I mean, we used to eat bread and butter and sugar sandwiches. Mm. Anyway, fast forward, I, you know, I loved candy my whole childhood and just was soaked in it, ice cream and whatever. And at 14 or 15, I discovered beer. And beer, I knew changed my state, right? I knew that beer, like I was a little shy and I could talk to girls and, you know, yeah. they used to call it liquid courage, whatever. And so basically... I was, it was a huge party till I was about 28 and I got sober. Mm -hmm. Again, that's another podcast, but the reason I bring it up is because after I got off the booze in the, in the pot and everything, I literally went right back to sugar in a heavy, heavy way mm -hmm. and kept, and a lot of people that do that in recovery. So I come from an abstinence-based kind of addiction background. So basically the, the next step in the, the thing was somehow I talked my wife into at the time having uh my kids they were twins by we didn't know that at the time but they turned out to be twins with no sugar no flour no caffeine in the womb until they were six years old that was we gave in at six and that's a long story about fighting the grandparents and the montessori schools and everybody but it was a wonderful thing to do for the kids and a lot of people think we deprived the kids but it's the furthest from the truth it was a real success story you know yeah. and uh and so, again, a little quick fast forward. The kids always said I should write a book about sugar and sugar addiction. So I did. And it did well on Amazon. It was in the number one in the healthy living department for a while there. And, and then I grabbed the name sugaraddiction.com about 10 years ago. And really nothing happened. I would research and give the best information out there. Mm -hmm. And nothing really happened. So about three years ago, we started coaching and doing online groups and stuff. And that's when it really exploded. We found out that people just need support. Mm -hmm. Information is on Google. I mean, you, it's not going to be very helpful to just know this. A lot of people know it, but they don't really take the action and they don't have any support. So anyway, that's the podcast version. That'll give you an idea how I got here. And like I said, it brings up, usually brings up more questions than it answers, but 
Yeah, I, I, I think just just something you you said there resonated with me so much with with anything right is the emotional state and i know you you highlighted right. that point but you know i'm sure you've gone down this rabbit hole but with your mom you know her sense of love was sugar right that was that was that was a treat that was more the the emotional state and obviously sugar is addictive so that gave it for her as a as a mother, you know, when she was laying you sugar, that was she was probably under the impression that she was it was love, right? It was nurturing. Yeah. It was it was it was coming from a place of love, but the I mean the intention was good, but the was. the For delivery sure. was shocking because now we know what we know. Yeah. Do you do you, have you I mean obviously you've pondered that a lot over the years, and is that a common theme as you start helping people that you that you see, you know see that people see this there's an actually emotional need they want to fall and they're using sugar to do that. Yeah. And it goes so much deeper too. And that uh, basically we're trained, um, you know, if you're crying or upset or hurt, you know, your, your mom was busy. She had other kids, she had a job, she had whatever, and she'll hand you a cookie and send you to the TV. So we learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like you said, the, the intentions, my mother used to say, my father had good, good motives and bad methods. <laughs> and this is, this is about the same thing. It's like, basically, you know, we learn that if there's an upset, a hurt, a pain, a fear, mm-hmm. uh, we, we learn to assuage it. We learn to quell it by using sugar. And it was unconscious and is unconscious still for most people, most even adults, right? And I mean, when was the last time you saw a movie where a girl's boyfriend broke up with her and didn't have an ice cream party with her girlfriends? I mean, it's literally a cultural thing now yeah. where we drowned ourselves, drowned our sugar like people drown their sorrows in beer. And so basically my, you know, uh, my, my mom's behavior, like you said, was... I wasn't malicious in any way. It just was for the time and is still going on today. You can still give this product to a one-year-old, but until people understand and actually split apart these two behaviors, this is meaning the behavior of the sugar, the, the toxin on your nucleus accumbens, on your dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, GABA, until they split this apart, until they understand this message that sugar in all its forms, in all its food and everything is not a food product. It's not a nutrition event. It's an emotional event when you're ingesting sugar. You're not looking for a sweet treat. You are looking for a dopamine hit. Mm. That, That knowledge, that separation. I always like to say on a podcast, like, we don't have a meat is murder. We don't have a uh, friends don't let friends drive drugs, some tagline where it's just very obvious. It takes an entire podcast, 30, 40, 50 minutes for people to understand this kind of uh, this science that's developed and the, the success stories that we've done over thousands of detoxes, what is actually happening and how to actually get off the stuff. Because just quitting is not enough. Most people find that very quickly. You know, in the uh, literature, that if someone loses a bunch of weight, very quickly, they gain it all back in the first year. Right. With interest. Plus, with interest. Yeah. And they, you know, at the beginning, they were basically white knuckling because every diet book says get off the white stuff. So they quit the sugar and flour or cut way back. 
lost the weight, and then they didn't handle the emotional piece of it. And that's why they gain it back. That's what happens. And so again, it takes a little bit of time to set it up and for, and to, you know, to dissect it all, to separate it all, but it really is the answer. It really is. Yeah. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm in the process of becoming a wildfit certified coach. It's, I don't know if you've checked it out before, but it's very much in food psychology. Mm. And there's a wonderful story um, that the founder tells about ice cream. And okay. he said, if you see most adults, if they're eating an ice cream, they're sitting down on a bench, they're sitting down eating ice cream because the conditioning was your parents were at a fair or somewhere else. They were, they were, they were exhausted by you running around. So they'd give you an ice cream and make you sit down, right? It gave them a breather. So, and, and, as you, and it's so brilliant. And as you watch around, you see adults, like it's so funny, grown adults at a McDonald's eating an ice cream, but sitting down. Sitting. It's, it's classic. And that's just that conditioning, you know, as you alluded to earlier on, it's such, such a, I have a lot of I'm stealing that, Clint. That's a great one. I love that. That's great. It's, it's, I can't take credit, but it's a brilliant, it's, as you said, it's that conditioning. It's a brilliant example. And it's just, you know, fulfilling that childhood memory, you know, going back, that's all it's doing. It's not, it's not, it's that dopamine. And it works. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely well. works on kids. Yeah. And I like to say, as I mentioned, and again, you know, you got to kind of repeat yourself a little bit, but it was eating an ice cream cone is an emotional event, not a nutritional event, right? Yep. So people are taking a breather, taking a break, like you said. They're 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 getting a dopamine hit. One of the things I heard the other day was great. This guy said uh, the brain's way of loving itself is to get a dopamine hit. Mm. It's just it doesn't care. It's not prejudiced. It will it have illicit sex, illegal drugs, gambling drugs it doesn't matter what it will it will get its hit if it can figure out a way for you to do it now you can do it on a walk or a run or a yoga class but you know this simple way of doing it that we've all been conditioned to that we've been talking about here uh is to reach for a sugar product right mm. and 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 then you get the little dopamine when you get to be an adult by the time you get to be an adult you're not really getting a buzz yes you're getting the dopamine hit but you're just really fighting off withdrawals too yeah there's a great uh, i'll put a link in the show notes as well and i'd love to get that eric clapton on as well but but um on ted where they you know talk about sugar and every time you get that dopamine hit from the sugar it gets lesser and less and lesser and the more and more you need to consume yeah. to get that same that same kick um, tolerance yep yeah, yeah exactly so just you're pulling back now, um, you know, so, so, so your wife's pregnant with the twins, um, you know, you'd come off the bottle, sugar became, you, you know, you said you dived into the sugar. When did you start researching it and looking into it and, and realizing how stacked the odds are against us in the food industry? When, when did that whole journey start? And if you don't mind also saying, what were you doing as a, like, what did you do career-wise and, and what are you doing as a day job in that time, at that time? Yeah, I was, uh, I actually owned a couple convenience stores at that time. And I could see the people's repetitive habits. Mm. Like they would come in same day, same time, or next day, same time, same Pepsi, same, you know, every day, yeah. Pepsi, nine o'clock, on the way to work, whatever. And uh, so I, you know, I got to see that, but I got lucky, I think. And what happened, it's funny, I, you must have ESP or something, because I, I left that part of the story out. I, I read a book. As I was trying to get healthy at the time, mm. I read a book 
called Sugar Blues. And Sugar Blues was, there wasn't much research out there, but what I was fascinated with in Sugar Blues, Sugar Blues was written by a guy who eventually married Gloria Swanson, the famous movie star. And they promoted that book pretty far. And it was a pretty good seller back then. Mm. But again, it died out because the, you know, the sugar industry and the car and the food industry kind of came up with scientific reasons that fat is bad for you and sugar is good, you know, sugar is better for you, whatever. But anyway, that was that time, the early 80s, right? And uh, in the book, he talks about the history, which I just fell in love with. I'm still in love with, and I've researched even deeper, and it gets even worse, to be honest with you, depending on how you look at it. But it was bad enough that, you know, England grew this gigantic empire on the backs of slaves. They would go to Africa and pick up slaves with empty ships. They'd go to the Caribbean, drop off the slaves, pick up the sugar and the rum and the molasses and come back. And literally El Chapo or, you know, any of those drug dealers, they, they had nothing compared to this empire that built over 150 years mm-hmm. and all of the money involved in that empire building on the backs of sugar and slavery. And that thing just really somehow tripped my trigger, that history lesson, and it made sense. And he did, obviously there wasn't much science back then, but I really enjoyed the cultural and the historic and the the idea that, and this is weird too, because I I don't tell many people about this and I don't even know where it came from. But when I was 18 or 19, I was working in bars and nightclubs and Back then, and still I think today, you can get your caffeinated beverages for free if you're an employee, right? Mm -hmm. And I would watch as people would uh, drink Coke and coffee and tea, and they would have to come to me, who was the bartender at the time, to get this. And I would watch this degradation under their eyes. They would literally get dark circles. And I didn't care if you were 16 or 60, it didn't matter. I would watch the circuit, these circles form the more you drank. Now, some people that didn't have that habit. So I had always had it in my mind about the substances and how they affect us. And obviously, I'd just gotten sober. So I was studying that. And so then I started thinking about the sugar. And that's how it happened. Yeah. And, and what was the I mean, well, there's so much to say there. I mean, let's talk about that Harvard study as a start one, right? I mean, the 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 one that got funded by the F by the sugar industry, which changed oh, nutrition. God. I mean, you know, that's from my understanding, um, you know, not as deep down the rabbit hole as you are. That that's the one of the most pivotal studies in history because it's it's right. it's created a lot of problems. Do you want to chat about that? If I've got my facts right. Well, you know, I mean, the, the story goes that there's two. There was two very prominent scientists of the day, Ansel Keys and John Ludwig, Ludwig, yeah. Ludwig, 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 or I don't know, Yudkin. I'm sorry, John Yudkin. And Yudkin was from Great Britain, and Ansel Keys was in the U.S. And Ansel Keys decided, whatever. There wasn't a lot of research around it. That after Ike Eisenhower, the president of the United States, had a heart attack, and this became to the came to the fore. And what happened was. He believed and was very political and very uh, aggressive in courting uh, politicians and the Senate and and, uh, after Ike's heart attack and convinced everyone, literally everyone, that fat was bad for you and that, you know, sugar was okay. And Yudkin, meanwhile, is over in England and he had written a book about sugar and they basically spent their life pretty much, you know, a great part of their career trying to 
defame Yudkin and try to knock him down and his research down. And he died, you know, kind of a broken guy because by the time he died, there they had decided that this fat theory, this thesis of fat was correct. And that's how we ended up in this mess to begin with. Um, for 40 years now, or since the early 80s, the late 60s, late 70s even, when high fructose corn syrup came into the diet, no one worried a little bit. No one worried at all about it. It just accelerated the, the obesity epidemic. And because people were demonizing fat and, uh, and sugar was okay. And when you take the fat out of food, it tastes like cardboard. And so they had to add sugar into it. And then we, it's so interesting that if you go back to that sugar blues book and I'm a history buff about this yeah. and it goes back to the seventh day Adventists and all, there's a huge Kellogg story and, uh, the seventh day Adventists in Australia, they own half the freaking hospitals over there, you know, and and, a and food companies, and they started as a vegetarian outfit who thought that, you know, if you ate these uh, meat, you, you know, would cause masturbation or something. I don't know, just the craziest stuff, right? Yeah. And so, anyway, that mess started because of misinformation, basically. And it's just, it's basically an evolutionary turn that, you know, took the wrong turn on a, at a fork road. And here we are today. And now we got on, got to unwind it basically. So was Yetkin's book, it was, that was white poison, right? Is that, was he the uh, one who wrote that? White, deadly, deadly white and poison or dead. Po no, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. and the Kellogg story, I mean, my understanding of the Kellogg story is they funded posters in American schools and made wheat and grain one of the right. four food pipes or something like that. And that's yeah, not the part of the staple American diet. That's right. And, and Kellogg's stuff came out of a sanitarium where he um, was helping people with all kinds of health, both mental health and physical health. And the more important part is that the Seventh-day Adventists, who are also believers in you know vegetarianism and kind of radical part like that, those folks, um, the founder... Uh, Kellogg worked for the founder or worked for someone printing for the people. And so he was indoctrinated as a young man into this, this, this culture. And that woman eventually went on to found what is now today, the dietitian society of America, you know, the, uh, the, the certifying body of uh, registered dietitians in the United States. That's a problem, you know, because you're right. They, they all, the, they're in their pyramid grains are at the bottom and the biggest thing you should be eating. Which turns directly into sugar. Yes. You know, I mean, we can we can get nitpicky now if you want. If you it, it, we go into the fructose, the glucose, the the, the grains are going to turn into sugar, and they're going to cause diabetes and blood sugar dysregulation and metabolic syndrome and heart disease and everything else under the sun. But the reason people can't quit is fructose. And that's just now coming to the fore where fructose is affecting the dopamine and serotonin. That's a, those last five years of studies and, and stuff has really proven that out because we, you know, we didn't know why people couldn't stay stopped basically. Yeah. They, they yeah. couldn't, they couldn't stay stopped. So I'd love, I'd love to loop back on the fructose one. I'm, I'm intrigued on that. Yeah. I just, in terms of, cause I know you, you, you'll probably or definitely have these statistics just to, Try frame the enormity of that that's that that sort of that study that got passed 40 years ago. So my understanding is type 2 diabetes wasn't really even a thing back there. Um, right. you know, in in the late 70s, early 80s, where from a North American perspective, I think the last stats I've seen looking at 
in excess of 20 million people or even more. Do you have any latest? Oh, it's higher statistics? than that. It's crazy. So do you have any I, latest I think it's, to show the enormity of, of how quickly that shift happened? I think it's like 70 million now, pre-diabetes and diabetes. Yeah. And they don't know that they have pre-diabetes, you know? And I think it's higher, actually. Um, and I'm not exactly sure on the stats. It's a good thing. I'll look it up and get get clear on it. But because um, it's a good stat to throw out there for sure. But it's enormously high. And for the most part, people don't realize they have pre-diabetes. And, and this is where the, well, some would call it cynic, some would call it radical in me, but I'm going to say it, right? It's a, it's a vicious loop because if you look at 70 million people just in, just in North America, as an example, yeah. the, the, the pharmaceutical industry tapping in on that, um, it must be enormous if you actually look at the cost per person going on medication because of this, it's plus the crazy. fact that from a sugar industry, you know, and, and I don't want to chat about, you know, the more sugar you eat, the less tired as you are, and the more you eat, right? So you overfed and undernourished. Yeah. Have you actually looked at those numbers as to, you know, the, the, for the pharmaceutical industry to have 70 million people diabetic or pre-diabetic is a very profitable business? Absolutely. It's a profitable business. I mean, the, the, the positive, the good news is now there's Verta Health, who has just got a billion dollar valuation, who has uh, you know, peer reviewed data of hundreds of people that they got off of metformin and literally put di type two diabetes into remission with just diet. And you know, the, that, those, those stats are the ones I look at. I already know that, you know, exactly what you're talking about, that it's just ridiculous. And, the, you know, you talk about the, the, the magnitude of the crisis. They have done uh, actuarial, you know, extension or exterior, ex, what do they call that word? But Extrapolation. Um, extrapolation. I love that word. Great job. Um, oh, I, know, I, was a, I was a stats person at uni. So. Oh, okay. So, yeah, extrapolate, extrapolated in that the Canadian social medicine and the, the Great Britain social medicine, oh, they will collapse in the next 10, 5 or 10 or 15 years, 20 years. They do not, the metabolic syndrome, the things, the constellation of symptoms around it, heart disease, diabetes, they don't have the fund. They will not have the funds. In the United States, it's very similar in the insurance world. You know, people are going to need this care and the preventative measures are actually quite simple they're what's that right thing that they're they're simple but they're not easy because the people have to have a behavioral change and get off the sugar yeah yeah so just in terms of you know let's pull back again to when, when you started to do the research what did your early work look like i mean you, you know you obviously were, had come off your own sort of addiction path from an alcohol perspective and you started to understand sugar how did you try to get the message across? Was that when you started writing your first book or, or what did that look like in the early days for you? Absolutely not. I, they used to call me the weird addiction specialist in the recovery rooms because they, the older the old timers would say, you know, I'd say, well, did talk, I talk at all about sugar or caffeine or anything. Yeah. They say, are you sober today, Mike? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, and this, here's a guy that's like 50, 80, 100 pounds overweight telling me that he doesn't need to worry about that because he's sober today. And so yeah. genuinely, I didn't do anything for 20 some odd years. Oh, wow. I, I really, yeah. no, I, I had a regular life, a regular career, you know, a lot of online stuff. I sold a lot of software and, you know, affiliate stuff and aggregated names, you know, kind of early days of the internet till now. And so it didn't really kick in until I bought the domain 10 years ago. 
and uh, really didn't get going until I started the actual coaching process. So, okay. yeah. And how was the journey of, because you, you've got a book, right? Yes. How was the journey of writing a book? Well, you know, I had to tell a lot of my story and my kid's story and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff, my mom's story. That was a little hard. It was a little bit, because uh, um, I'm pretty, I'm an introvert. You know, I don't like getting that kind of stuff out there. Um, but, you know, it had to be done. I, I really have a passion for um, overweight and obese kids. And I just, the kids don't get, they don't buy the food and they don't, you know, source it. And uh, having had the experience with my own kids, knowing it was hard, but it wasn't that damn hard yeah. between the time they were four and five, they just didn't get it. They didn't know about it. They didn't care. People would walk up to us in restaurants and say, how do you get your kids to eat like this? Like they're eating vegetables off the salad bar and they're like, you don't give them anything else. They'll eat, believe me. Yeah. And so I really have this passion for the young, the kids, because, you know, kids can be mean and growing up overweight and forget about the health benefits, but you know, it, it hurts their self-esteem and, and it's not necessary because they don't source or control their diet in the yearly days. So this is a message that needs to get out. So that's kind of where, it, I mean, adults, um, not that I'm <laughs> draconian. I, I'm not like, uh, you know, you're, I am kind of a, allow people to live and let live. And if somebody comes to me for help, I'll help them. Adults are different. The kids, they don't have a choice. And so I've got to tell the, I've got to, you know, get the oxygen mask on the parents get them to understand this so that they can then help the kids. Yeah, I hear you. And, and you know, just as you, you just, just the thought there when you're thinking about your kids, and I'm, and I'm sure you got ostracized a lot for it, you know, you, you're punishing them and let them live and all that. It's, it's, <laughs> depriving you know, of it's, you know, you're depriving them of it. But it's, it's, it's and, and once again, it sounds alarmist and dramatic, but, you know, if you've given them something that's as addictive as heroin, you know, if, if you had a kid and you were shooting them up with heroin at five year old, like what kind of parent are you? Yeah. Um, whereas it's suddenly acceptable to give them all the, you know, layer them up in sugar. And I did the same as well. Right. So guilty as charged, um, mm-hmm. you know, not non-sugar bringing my kids up, but it's, it's so weird how we've got ourselves in a society where if you actually putting your kids health first, Mm. then you're depriving them and then you're a bad parent and you all the other things off shame the poor kids that's a south african thing the shame word mm. how tough was it for you i mean i know you were obviously pretty focused on your mission but you must have got a lot of external you know helicopter parenting coming in oh it was the nightmare literally i mean my own parents and her own parents like they they could you couldn't leave them there alone my father was the worst he was like he didn't believe it still he probably died, he died not believing it he didn't believe it and he would sneak him stuff, you know? Yeah. So we couldn't, and the schools, everything is rewarded around school. Little league, baseball, like as soon as they're done, all, you know, parents are in charge of the juice boxes and the candy. Like they, that, that was the treat afterwards. And then to deprive the kids of having that, it's a pain in the butt, you know? Mm-hmm. But it really was worth it because they just didn't get this groove pathway, this neural pathway in their brain grooved to, uh, to need it. And as a result, luckily, you know, knock on wood, they did not have uh, a, a draw to alcohol. They didn't have a draw to change their state. They, they matured in a, in a more organic way around their emotions. Now, there's a common construct in the world of drug and alcohol recovery 
that it's very well known. It's not, it's very well known. It's, it's common that if you started using drugs or alcohol when you were 14 or 15 years old, that's when you stop growing emotionally. That means you, you know, your responsibility level, your financial, your relationships, your job, you, you didn't handle it. And that reflects in your life, whether you're 20, 30, 40, or 50, if you're a recovering person, or you have a problem with alcohol or drug. And if you think about it, the stuff that we've been talking about in a scenario where, you know, and if you ask anyone who's lost 100 or 200 pounds, this is the recovery they had to go through, very similar to a drug and alcohol recovery. But if you think about a child using this product as since they were a baby and in the womb, maybe, but two or three, their, their constant pounding of 20 average teaspoons a day uh, of their dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, GABA, even their adrenal glands have been affected and always seem to be at a high level of fight or flight because this is not something God or nature, whatever you believe in, is not something that the human body was supposed to endure day in and day out. And so, it, you know, it's got to be, this message has to get out there and we are in the beginning of a tectonic shift. And this is, you know, this is mm. going to happen sooner or later, but it, you know, the, the, the can't happen soon enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's, 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 you know, as part of the program I do, we spend time making people read labels mm -hmm. and some of the stuff that sugar, I mean, my best one besides, you know, dried fruit, that's got sugar added to it, which is insane. But I had someone send a picture yesterday actually of salt of salt oh. grains yeah with sugar, has, sugar. with sugar additive yeah i mean it's just insane yeah they call it an anti-caking agent it's, but at least mcdonald's has been pressured so much that they have to put it on the little label and it's crazy and you know and i think what people don't realize is that and i don't have proof of this yet but i'm working on it mm. is that when something is shipped is something a product is shipped the product the person who's selling the product doesn't have to disclose that there's sugar in it like that little packet you saw uh, because it came from a vendor the salt that they bought to put on their product came from a vendor uh. and so they don't have to put it on there there's a lot of little loopholes like that like the bubbly waters that taste like um you know, sweeter than soda Yeah, that are literally in the United States, they sneak under a law that calls it natural flavoring <laughs> because it's fructose. Basically it's like crystalline pure fructose. I mean, I had to spit, I tasted when I spit it out. It was like, tasted like I was drinking like a Coke syrup or something. I don't know. It's terrible. Amazing. So what's, I, I, before we get into, you know, your program and, and how you started doing the coaching and your sort of philosophy to detox from sugar, um, you mentioned fructose, um, which is generally, from my understanding, you know, found in fruit, which the way I understand it, because of the fiber there, your body can actually process this, whereas the, proce the processed sugar, it doesn't see it as it's a non-food, right? Your body has no idea what to do, and hence storing it as fat. What's, what's, is, is that, do you agree with that understanding, or, or what's your take on fructose in a natural fruit form? Yeah, I get a lot of pushback on this. And you have a countryman named Gary Fetke, F-E-T-T-K-E, Dr. Gary Fetke. And he's yep. got a great video on YouTube, Is Fruit Good For You? He says a lot better than I do. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, um, fructose, the body, again, doesn't know the difference between a fructose and a Coke or the fructose and an orange juice. And the fiber is nice. But what I found in detoxing people is that 
uh, when you get, Dr. Lustig says that the fructose is the offending molecule, okay? So mm. when you, you start to detox and you overdose on fruit, it just keeps the cravings alive. Mm. You're, you're still getting that dopamine hit from too much fructose. And if you think about it, what the video would describe is for you is that, um, you know, hundred, I mean, 200, 300 years ago, we had these little crab apples. We had these little bananas you couldn't even recognize, blueberries that were wild and kind of almost bitter. Mm. And there was very little fructose in them, but we were attracted to them. There's nothing in nature that's uh, poisonous that has fructose in it. Yeah. So we are attracted to it to disperse the seeds, right? It's very ecologically efficient. But and if you wanted to risk getting stung by a bee, you could get a little bit, but you were getting just a tiny, tiny bit. We evolved to have just a tiny bit once or twice a year. That's it. Today, we are pounding 20, 30, 40 teaspoons through our system of crystalline fructose, processed fructose, like the difference between the coca leaf and cocaine, processed fructose, right? Yeah. And the only place it can be digested is the liver and it causes fatty liver in children. We have an epidemic of, of uh, disease of uh, fatty liver in children. And the more important part, I've asked Dr. Fecky, I've asked Dr. Lustig point blank, uh, both when I've interviewed him and in person, yep. is fructose a psychoactive drug? And both of them said, absolutely, yes. And so I do believe it. And coming from a background of addiction and recovery and knowing that when you slide someone in an MRI and you give them fructose through a straw, it lights up the same part of the brain. It's the, not the glue. The glucose is destroying the body. We know about that. Okay. Mm -hmm. it, it's like the ex elevated glucose and elevated blood sugar. But the reason people can't stop using sugar is because of the fructose, not the glucose. Yeah, so my, my stance on, on, on fructose and fruit, it's, it's seasonal. If you evolutionarily look back, right, it would have been on a tree for a month or two. If yeah. that, and then it was gone. Yeah. Um, you know, which say that's, you know, three weeks in a year and uh, not right. at the moment where it's every day of the year. Yep. Um, Correct. And, and, and what's, what's your, you know, in terms of the pancreas working overtime with, 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 you know, if you look back evolutionary, we maybe had to deal with the, the fructose for three weeks a year. Now we're dealing with every day of the year. Yeah. What's your take on the pancreas being overloaded because of all, you know, all that production. And once again, my understanding insulin, just to try to keep up with all this sugar we're putting in. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, pancreatic cancer is very real. Steve Jobs and a lot of people that I've seen uh, who, uh, you know, suffer from that kind of thing. I, I Just observationally, now I'm not uh, a scientist and I don't know, but it seems that the combination of caffeine and high levels of fructose, Jobs was well known to eating. He was a, a lot fruitarian, of, wasn't he? Yeah, a lot of fruit and uh, people that eat a lot of sugar and a lot of caffeine, they seem to overload their pancreas. And I, I, I really believe that. I mean, I think it's... Um, similar to the liver and fatty liver, where it's processed in the liver, and and you also have uh, you know irritable bowel, uh, you have IBS, all these things. There's actually a a malady that's in the record books, it, uh, record books. It's in the, the diagnostic books um, called fructose malabsorption, fructose intolerance, right? Mm -hmm. And it causes digestive issues and. It's very difficult to uh, diagnose. People don't realize it till they, you know, been at their fourth or fifth doctor. They finally, and you can do it by a simple breath test. Uh, you can find out about it. But yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's rough on the system. It, it, overdoses of it is rough on the system.
Okay. So just always conscious of time. Yeah. Cause I know you got to go at the top of the hour. Do you want to talk about, so you got your book out there, you said, you know, seven years of not much happening. And then you started to do the coaching and the, you know, sort yeah. of and holding people through. What are the early phases of the, that, you know, your, your sort of what I read a 30 day detox, what did it look like in the early days and how's it evolved today in terms of how you kind of handheld and walk people through that journey? Yeah. I mean, when we've since like put the book on the website for free, mm -hmm. uh, you can download the book for free at the website. Uh, just go to sugaraddiction.com and you'll get a copy of the book digitally. And, uh, we also have a 30-day challenge, which has turned out to be our most successful uh, venture to date. <laughs> uh, over years, I would coach one-on-one. -on -one, and from it, I took all of the success and I put it into a 30-day delivery of a video every single day. And more than that, we've got 7,000 people in a forum. We've got Zoom meetings every night of the week, soon to be every, or every week night of the week, and soon to be every day of the week where you can plug into the support system. And we find that, you know, I, I was once the chairman of a food, the Food Addiction Institute here in the U.S. And the, the research out of there says very simply that this requires an inordinate amount of support. Mm -hmm. And people, because we're outliers a little bit, because we're early adopters, because it's not a common thing, you feel lonely. And that's what people tell me all the time. They come for the accountability. They come for the, the support and the community. And that's really the success. One of the things, the stats that people are really blown away by is that this really is less than 10% about the food. Yes, you have to eat whole food. This is a given. Mm -hmm. But it's more about the emotional development, the understanding that we're separating out the drug food from the real food, and that we are reordering our emotional life, our emotional management systems uh, around uh, sugar. And this is not intuitive for people because it's such a societal accepted norm. It's not a thing that where they would instantly get it. We've had so the reason my book is called The Last Resort Sugar Detox is because people have tried, on average, you're a stats guy, 6.8 different diets. Okay. And that's just average. And I think it's underreported because the people that do the testimonials for us, those folks have done 10, 20, you know, 15, 20 different diets and just a long list over 20 years. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's turned out to be pretty successful only because of uh, pattern recognition. I can tell you pretty much if you're kind of a normal, not too far overweight person, mm. what'll happen on day three, four, five, which is the tough spot for an average person. Now, if you're overweight and you really never had an opportunity, if you were overweight as a child and never really had an opportunity to uh, have any muscle memory or, you know, of that, that takes a little bit longer. You're, you're, you're really coming in at a, at a, at a deficit and the, um, I, I mean, this is harsh, and you know, you're you're op obviously open to it. And I like the way you're honest about it. It's like, honestly, people they 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 say this to me after they're done, yeah. or, you know, after they're pretty free of it, ninety or one hundred twenty days later, their brain is really not in a place to make the decision on how to do this while they're on it. Yeah. Truly, this is not about exercising. Uh, it's not about calorie reduction. It's about rehabbing your brain. It's about understanding the flow of your emotions that are caused by uh, abuse of sugar and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's a, uh, 
It's interesting. I mean, it's I I, I don't know where I got the uh, the the excitement for it. Uh, I think maybe my own recovery and my kids and whatever. But I love seeing the light bulb go on, and that just gives me more joy than any amount of money. You know, I made good money when I was you know I had my career different careers, but this is much better. You know, much better. Yeah, I mean, I I it's I, you know I'm busy coaching a group of seventeen right now. And- after every yeah. call, I'm like lit up like a Christmas tree. You know what I mean? Just exactly. you, can, you can see it's just, you know, through, through nutrition, you just see people like, you know, marriages coming together, people, you know, dealing yeah. with old baggage and all this stuff that they haven't had the capacity to process because they've been in a haze as they yep. come through that. It's just, it's, it's, as you said, no, no amount of dollars will give you that, that sense of, of, of warmth, but you know, you, you talk about exercise and that's one of my, um, Oh man, as you know, as an ex-competitive rugby player, I used to kill myself uh, mm. trying to, you know, I, I would exercise a bad nutrition. And you know, <laughs> where where I used to live, there was a mountain I used to go up often. And um, you know, when I started my journey and you know, kind of detoxing from all the bad stuff, is is you see people, you know, running up and down this mountain, um, probably you know, 30, 40 kilograms, like take 80 pounds overweight. They've mm. got these weighted vests on with these, you know, to make it harder, yeah. um, you know, and they, they running up and then they're flying down this hill and I'm just thinking of their joints and that the effort that it put in and you, you know, there's, you can't fault the person. They're doing the best that they can with the information. Mm-hmm. But then you'll see them sitting at the bottom, having a mango smoothie, which is, which, which for them is a healthy choice, right? Because that's what they believe is the right choice. And you're like, I just want to walk up to them and go like, mate, you've got it wrong, right? You've got to flip it the other way around and you won't have to kill yourself yeah. going up and down this mountain. Do you, just in terms of your program and, and, you know, obviously a lot of people want to release weight through that. Do you also just say to them, listen, put the exercise on hold for now and sort your nutrition out and then the rest will take care of itself or what's your strategy there? 100%. I mean, you don't even have to exercise. You can, you know, I, I suggest it not for calorie reduction, not for um, weight loss, mm. but for mental rehab, to rehab your brain. Because we all know you get a little bit of a, uh, a an elevated feeling when you exercise any amount, yeah. and it's helpful. And, you know, the science is unclear yet as to whether dopamine receptors come back in any, you know, real way. But they, you know, you do feel better and you're trying to rehab your brain through nutrition. And when you do that, uh, and when you focus on the exercise for that and not for the weight loss, you do much better. Yeah. Um, if you, fo- what I got, I got a saying is so if you focus on the weight, you'll lose your abstinence. If you focus on your abstinence, you'll lose the weight. Pretty much. It's simple, actually. Um, you know, we got another saying, you know, you come for the vanity and you stay for the sanity. The most uh, talked about uh, thing that they, uh, you know, once they're clean, once they're off the stuff, once they've had some success, a lifestyle change, they just say the mental clarity. It's like I can work better, I can focus longer, I don't sleep as long, I'm not as tired. Mm-hmm. It, and yes, they're falling to a right size body. The weight does come off, but it's absolutely a byproduct. It's not this first. It's not the original. Yeah, it's not the. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's not the thing we're focused on. I just want to give you an amen there because I mean that's <laughs> just you know when people come in, it's. And this is the tricky part, right? Because they come into the program, you know, the one I run as well, like coming for weight loss goals, but that's just ego driven, right? And it's, yeah. it's, 
it's such a, a tiny thing. And once you, as you said, once you calm your central nervous system, once you're thinking clearly, you're sleeping, you reduce stress in the body, then that yep. comes, right? And, but the way you almost got to entice people into the door is, oh, yeah, we're going to release all this weight and it's going to be good. But it's, it's 5% of the benefit compared to how better their lives can be and how, as you said, the lights can come on. Um, it's, it's such an interesting you said something very interesting that, and this is, you know, coming from a marketing background, it, this is a marketing puzzle, right? This is a product people need, but they don't want. They want cute clothes and golf clubs. They do not want to get off. They don't want to commit to a 30-day sugar product. They don't want to do it. They want to keep their old ways. And so you literally have to baby step them in. Mm. And you're right. The 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 hook, the the uh, carrot, the thing that you're trying to bring them in is weight loss. Yeah. And then they discover, uh, you know, the reality of the situation. That's what, and that's weird because people they they don't respond to uh, the, even the term sugar addiction. You know, it's just I may rebrand someday because. It's like people don't want to think about the word addiction. Facebook yeah. doesn't allow you to put it up. Sometimes even Google, they don't want to talk or think about a malady like that. Um, they they have this vision of a drunk under a bridge with a brown paper bag. They're not interested in, you know, I, I try to tell them, look, this is more, this is closer to nicotine than it is to heroin or alcohol. Yeah. You know, this is, it's a little niggling habit that's hard to quit and could kill you in the long run. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. I was actually chatting to one of my clients yesterday, and he's he's like a high flyer businessman, and yeah. he was saying to me, "Oh, you know, I've um, I wake up an hour and a half earlier, you know, and we kind of only a few weeks in, and I'm like, okay, so we're looking at an extra eight hours a week." I said, "What's your <laughs> what's your ROI on that?" And he goes, "Oh, I'm like, yeah." I said, "I I think I need to charge you more, but it's you know, it's, it's those those peripheral side effects that come in, you know, because it's sure because if if you if you sold that, you know, that's not a sexy hook." Um, no, you know, it's, no. it's, it's, it's crazy. So just in terms of just, I'm just conscious. So I know you got another one on the top of the hour. You just mentioned something else I want to lean to when, you know, when you said people go sort of 30, 60, 91, 20 days, what, what extra support can you, you know, once you've done the 30 days, you obviously take the 80% out of it. What other support do you offer your clients just, just to kind of see them through so that they knock it on the head completely? Okay, the structure that we have is called peer recovery. We borrowed it or stole it or, you know, whatever, appropriated it from the drug and alcohol world where peer recovery coaches are very helpful. Our peer recovery coaches have all gone through the program. They've done it themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And so for an additional little bit of money, you can get a peer recovery coach and a one-on-one -on -one kind of sponsor person. And that's really the second layer for the folks. And we're working on other different things. But for the most part, that's really the core of it. They get into the challenge and they get in the group and they can do it. A lot of people do 80, 90% of the folks do it just with the group. But then the folks that need, we call them retreads, Clint, man. They're like, they, we give them such a good experience. They go away. They come, and six months later, they come back. Okay, okay, I'm ready. You know, they ask me, What's my business model? I say, I sort for people that are ready because I can't change them if they're not ready. And then we provide them with a peer recovery coach. It's not that much more money. You'd be surprised. You got it really cheap, actually. It was best. I try and get it as low as I can. It's not a nonprofit, but I try and get it so that it's just to, enough to pay the bills and pay the programmers and what have you. Yeah. And so, you know, we get them a peer recovery coach. And they, like I said, they've all passed through the program. They've been where you've been. And then they, you know, they help you get through it. And then you can get that for 30, 60, 90 days, whatever you want. Okay, magic. And when, when does your course start? Is a, I mean, do, do you run them one month at a time if people want to sign up? How does that all work? 
Yeah, no, we do uh, have different groups start at the beginning of every month, but you can join at any time. It's okay. like Netflix. You can binge through. The first week is a, uh, a prep week. They don't even ask you to quit, just yep. prepping you. And then the next week, the next three weeks is uh, this actual, you know, you're going cold turkey or you've reduced down, you choose. Mm. And that's, uh, you know, again, you can start at any time. And when you get into the groups, they get into the forum, you get into the Zoom meetings, there's just this wide range. And that's why the peer recovery structure works because they get into this wide range of people. Somebody say, I got a year, I got six months, I got this, mm. you know, somebody else brand new. And it's that whole group of people helping each other that makes it work. And, and I, mean, I, yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm out of it at that point. Not out of it, but I mean, I go to them, but I mean. Yeah, I, re, I mean, the group thing that, you know, the herd mentality is so, because, you know, one person's question is everyone's question. And it's just yeah. me, everyone's struggling on the same thing. It's just like, oh, I'm not alone. It's just, it's, it's amazing. You know, I, I offer one-on-one, -on -one, but I put it at a huge premium because I don't really want people to do that because being in that pack. <laughs> That's exactly what I do. I keep going higher. I just say, yeah. I can't, you know, I don't, you know, I got a, I got thousands of people trying to get off. And so I just keep raising the price. Like, I don't really want to do it. I want them to help each other. Because that's where the power lies, right? Because I once, agree. once they, once we leave them, you know, yeah. they've got to be in the world themselves and make those choices. So, yeah. And they got to make friends. They got to make friends. They got to. So I'm just going to wrap this up because I know you got another one. I just want to say thank you so much for your time, man. It's been super informative. Um, I know we could have gone for a lot longer, <laughs> probably. Yeah, no, we, maybe we'll try it. We'll try it again. And we should have you on our summit one day. It's a, it's an amazing thing. It's really, it's a, it's a it just finished this year, but, or this, we might do another one this year, but I absolutely love that. And just to, where can people find you? We'll put all the links up in the videos up in the show notes. And firstly, where can people find you? And secondly, for anyone who, who probably listened and got this far and think these are two radical dudes talking about extreme <laughs> stuff, um, but are on the fence and actually have got this far, they obviously realize there's an issue, just some closing advice um, to, to kind of end it up for us. Yeah, sure. No problem. They, uh, they can go to the Quit Sugar Summit, just leave their email. That way they can uh, uh, you know, get the whenever we do the next event. Um, but at sugaraddiction.com, there's that yellow, big picture of a yellow book, uh, The Last Resort Sugar Detox. Download that for free. That's how you get started. You can just read the thing. Um, and then if you want to try the 30-day challenge, there's places where you can click there. But sugaraddiction.com is where I live. And I'm on all the socials as sugar-free man. Mm. Uh, so they can find me there too. But I always say to people, look, if you're a little bit of a pioneer in your world, I don't care if it's scholastic or athletics or career or whatever. If you're a little bit of a rebel, if you're an early adopter to things, then this is this might be for you because it takes a little bit of that pioneer spirit to actually get success in this and willing to join another group, willing to get outside of your family of origin, your mates of origin, your workmates, your schoolmates, and to you know join a new tribe, then you probably have success. Awesome. Mike, thank you so much for your time and have a wonderful day. Thank you so much, sir. I appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye-bye.